1: the 1961 ferrari 250 gt california less than a hundred were made my father spent three years restoring this car it is his love it is his passion it is his fault he didn't lock the garage ferris what are you talking about Ferris, my father loves his car more than life itself. A man with priorities so far out of whack doesn't deserve such a fine automobile.
2: Oh, yeah. No, no. Apparently, you don't understand. Wow. Ferris, he never drives it. He just rubs it with a diaper.
0: Hello, movie viewers and movie lovers. My name is Tim Williams, and I'm your host for the 80s Flick Flashback Podcast, where we talk about all the great and sometimes not-so-great movies from the 1980s, from blockbusters to cult classics to lesser-known treasures we discovered on cable TV or the now-defunct video rental stores from our childhood. No matter what flick we choose from week to week, we'll have a lot of fun sharing memories, discussing our favorite scenes and even learning some behind-the-scenes stories about the cast and crew along the way. So let's jump right into today's episode. Thanks for listening. Life moves pretty fast. If you don't stop and look around once in a while, you could miss this quintessential 80s flick. It has been called one of the classic movies about the teenage experience, as relevant to today's Snapchatting pre-adults as it was to those of us coming of age in the Pac-Man mania era. This enduring popularity is thanks to its simple story. Teenage boy fakes a sickness to embark on a day of antics and adventure around Chicago. The energetic cast and quotable dialogue nails the in-between psychology of adolescence. No longer children and not yet adults, the titular anti-hero and a socially awkward friend, and to a lesser extent his jealous sister, use this single day of wild abandon to better understand their place in the world. So fake a stomach cramp, Get your best friend to steal his dad's Ferrari, and then fool your principal to get your girlfriend out of class so you can join Jeff Atkins and I as we discuss Ferris Bueller's Day Off from 1986 on this episode of the 80s flick flashback. All right, so that's what we're talking about today. We're talking about Ferris Bueller's Day Off, and I'm so happy to have my good friend, my longtime friend, Mr. (laughs) Jeff Atkins, as guest co-host with me. How are you doing, Jeff?
2: I'm doing good. Thanks for having me on.
0: Hey, man, it's going to be a fun one. Now, if memory serves me correctly, this is one of your favorite films, correct?
2: This was. I actually just rewatched this uh, <laughs> earlier today, and I uh, I thought, man, you got the right guest host for this one.
0: Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, let's jump right in. I got a lot of stuff to cover. So when did you see Ferris Mueller's Day Off for the very
2: first time? I uh, I was thinking about it. I, I can't remember um, <laughs> seeing it in the theater when I was younger. I saw this was released in, in 1986, which means right. I was... Ten years old, uh, <laughs> but uh, no, I remember. I remember renting it VHS yeah. uh, from one of the local uh, rental places where I lived, and uh, I think I saw it probably seventh, eighth grade, something like that.
0: Okay, so just a, just a video rental,
2: yeah, video rental, and I've probably seen it every year or two since. So yeah, I've, yeah. I've seen it a lot. <laughs>
0: yeah, I do remember actually seeing this one in the theater. I remember going to see this. And I don't think it was like when it first came out, I think this was like going to see it, like the dollar dollar kids back in the day, we had things called dollar theaters where you actually go see a movie for a dollar. And, uh, so I remember my mom, my sister and I, and it might've been one of my sister's friends. And we went like on a Friday night and I remember like the theater was completely packed. Like we got there like right before it started. So we were really sitting all the way in the back. Uh, but I remember that being, I remember seeing it in the theater because, I remember at the very end, like we were, because we were sitting in the back, like, oh, cool. As soon as the movie's over, we can get up and get out before, you know, uh, everybody starts leaving. But as soon as that, you know, we thought it was over. And then the scene with Rooney and the school bus like, oh, mom was like, sit down, sit down. It's not over. It's not over. You know? (laughs) And so just sitting in the theater and watching all the way through the credits, all the way to the very last scene of Ferris coming back out. So that has always like been emblazoned in my memory of like, I remember that so vividly of seeing that part in the theater and like, we thought that was the coolest thing ever of like him coming out the end and saying, what are you guys still doing here? It's over, go home. So, so I'm definitely remember seeing it at the theater, but I've seen it. Yeah. I think, and the funny thing is I recorded this off of TV. So I remember the edited version. So I remember a lot of the lines, you know, where they took the curse words out and what they put in. And one of my favorite ones is when he's talking about Cameron's car in the TV version, it was like, it's
1: a piece of tin, you know and that's what it is just
2: surprisingly though that car Cameron's car was almost exactly like the very first car i had it was oh a, really uh, it was a beat-up 85 dodge colt oh and, yeah uh, oh yeah i i uh i still see myself in that when i when i see him driving <laughs> i'm trying to drive yeah so, yeah
0: exactly i'll go i'll go i'll go he'll <laughs> keep calling me and he keep calling me yeah
2: uh awesome so when was the last time you saw it before you watching it for the podcast um it was probably a couple years ago we were my family was down in Florida on vacation and Mm -hmm. um we were looking for something to do one night and we happened to see that this was shown at one of the the movie theaters there locally oh nice and uh so we get to actually see it on the big screen again which was cool I I, that may have been the only time I think I've ever seen it on the big screen was was that night um there was probably only five or six other people in the theater but it was (laughs) it was still funny man
0: oh yeah wow I wonder if that was like the 30th anniversary, because that would have been like, what, 2016, maybe?
2: Oh, I think it was probably 2018 or 2019 okay. when we saw that. So yeah, They might have just
0: been rerunning it, because I know yeah. see, they, there was a lot of stuff when I was going on, I'm looking for research, a lot of stuff written on the 30th anniversary. So I wonder if maybe they did like a re-release or something. So I think they were running it like back during when beginning of the COVID The pandemic, when theaters were still, you know, we're still trying to stay open and like showing the older movies. I think this is one of the ones I saw they showed here. And I would have liked to have gone to see the theater, but I didn't. So but I've seen it. uh, Like I said, we've I had the VHS. I'm sure I had the DVD. And then I just recently actually purchased the the Blu-ray to watch it for this. So I was like, I've got to have you. You have to own this movie like I cannot not own this movie. So it's been several years since I sat down and watched it from beginning to end again like I remembered so much of it cause I've seen it so many times, but to actually sit yep. down and rewatch it, it's been, it's been a good minute to really sit down and watch it. So.
2: Yeah. The last couple of times I've watched it, the, the scene, it's funny because so many scenes of that movie I love, but mm-hmm. when Ferris is calling in near the beginning of the movie. And he's calling into school to talk to some of the kids on the um, pay phone. Yeah. <laughs> one of the guys he's talking to is screech from saved by the bell. And I, uh, I notice that every time I see it, I just crack up laughing.
0: Oh, man, I didn't catch that. So I have to go back and I have to go back and see that. So, all right, well, let's jump into the story origin and pre-production, how this uh, great movie came to be. So as he was writing the film in 1985, John Hughes kept track of his progress on a spiral bound logbook. He noted that the basic storyline was developed on February 25th and then was successfully pitched the following day to Paramount Studios chief. Uh, no, sorry, Ned Tannen. Tannen was intrigued by the concept, but wary that the Writer's Guild of America was hours away from picketing the studio. Hughes wrote the screenplay in less than a week. Editor Paul Hirsch explained that Hughes had a trance-like concentration to a script writing process, working for hours on end, and would later shoot the film on essentially what was his first draft of the script. He said the first cut of Ferris Bueller's Day Off ended up at two hours and 45 minutes. The shortening of the script actually had to come in the cutting room, Having the story episodic and taking place in one day meant the characters were wearing the same clothes, and he suspected that Hughes writes the scripts with few, if any, costume changes just so he can have the kind of freedom in the editing. Hughes intended the movie to be more focused on the characters rather than the plot. Hughes said, I know how the movie begins and I know how it ends. I don't ever know the rest, but that doesn't seem to matter. It's not the events that are important. It's the characters through the event. Therefore, I make them as full and as real as I can. This time around, I wanted to create a character who could handle everyone and everything. Edward McNally was rumored as the inspiration for the character Ferris Bueller. McNally grew up on the same street as Hughes, had a best friend named Bueller, but spelled B-U-E-H-L-E-R, and was relentlessly pursued by the school dean over his truancy, which accounted to 27 days absent compared to Bueller's nine in the film. So, yeah, it seemed like he pulled he pulled a lot of uh, real life into this uh, script, it seems like. So anything to add there?
2: No, I'm just laughing. You know, I, 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 think back, you know, to my high school years, the reason this movie, you know, I, I watched it so many times growing up. And then when I got to, well, got to high school that uh, mm-hmm. particularly my senior of high school, I think I missed close to 20 days of school. <laughs> um, so I, I just, you know, lived it out in real life in yeah. more ways than not. But it was, uh, it's just funny to hear that.
0: Oh my goodness. Yeah. So but, yeah, I think we talked about, so, you know, in the course of this podcast, we just recently did Breakfast Club, which was like the first John Hughes directed film we've done. We've done Vacation, which he wrote, and we did Planes, Trains and Automobiles, which he wrote. So we've kind of talked a little bit about John Hughes before, but with this one, this was like the first real John Hughes movie that I saw. Like, I don't think or, you know, I didn't see Breakfast Club when I was younger. And I think this one came out shortly after that one. With well, 16 Candles was first. Then Breakfast Club, then this one. And I I think I saw Sixteen Candles, but this was the one that stood out to me more than 16 Candles. So uh it's just interesting to think about how it's kind of stayed in in our minds. And it, you know, this was to me, this is the epitome of a John Hughes film. This is the this is my top, top tier one for sure. So, and we'll get more into that as we get closer to the end. So
2: yeah, I didn't realize he was the same director of, of all those movies. So that's that's interesting. But uh, Breakfast Club certainly sticks out in my mind. But but Ferris yeah. Bueller, I mean, that was that was just the movie that you know that was that was high school. So. <laughs> yeah, <laughs>
0: yeah, I can say yeah. I would say especially between those two films, this one was much more relatable to like uh, what I would consider like a typical high school. Like Breakfast Club is is unique. But it, it was trying to, it was one thing it was more serious, more dramatic story. So it's not really meant to be as funny where this one's really going for comedy. Um, but he has so many different characters. You're kind of throwing all these different characters into one room and then that how that dialogue and that drama. So it's it's a totally different type of film. So it's hard to really compare the two because they're not really meant to be the same kind of film. But it's interesting. They both came from John Hughes in um, a di- very different approach to both of those films. So. Well, let's uh, let's jump into the casting and talk about all this and the casting. I thought this was going to be kind of short because you do really only think about, you know, Ferris, Cameron and Sloan and then Mr. Rooney. But you got a lot of good cast uh, members in this. machine. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I forgot. I, I mean, every time I watch it, I always forget he's in it until that scene pops up. So. So uh, we'll we'll start with the top. So Hughes said he had Broderick in mind when he wrote the screenplay, saying that Broderick was the only character. I'm sorry, the only actor he could think of who could pull off the role, calling him clever and charming. He said certain guys would have played Ferris, and you would have thought, "Where's my wallet?" Hughes said I had to have the, I had to have that look, that charm had to come through. Jimmy Stewart could have played Ferris at 15. I needed Matthew. Alan Ruck later told the AV Club that Anthony Michael Hall, who had previously worked with Hughes on three films was originally offered the part but turned it down other actors who are considered for the role included and this is this is hilarious to me jim carrey <laughs> john cusack tom cruise and michael j fox so i don't know any of those he you consider
2: jim carrey for ferris i never heard that you know
0: jim carrey pops up on a lot of these i just think i just think he auditioned for everything back in the 80s i think he was just trying to get into the business so or they just like to throw his name in here to, just to make it stay relevant i guess See, he had worked with Cusack and 16 Candles. He had uh, he had not worked with Tom Cruise, even though Tom Cruise had been, in, had been in a few other things. And of course, Michael J. Fox. I could see Michael J. Fox a little bit, but I don't know, Matthew Broderick is still kind of the best choice as far as I'm concerned.
2: Yeah, I can see similarities between Michael J. Fox and, and Matthew Broderick. But yeah, of those people you just mentioned, Broderick was definitely the, the best choice.
0: Yeah, even watching it, and I guess because knowing that like uh, John Cryer began to do more John Hughes movies. He was in, I think, Pretty in Pink. And then I think he did, was he? I know he did Pretty in Pink. He might did another one. But there's a few times where I felt like either John Cryer tried to model his characters after Ferris Bueller or like his personality, or if it was just kind of, they were kind of very similar. But there are a few times watching the movies like, that was very much like what John Cryer would do in one of the other movies. So I know that stood out to me. I was surprised his name wasn't on here, so. Uh, Mia Sarah surprised Hughes when she auditioned for the role of Sloan Peterson. It was funny, she said, he didn't know how old I was, and he said he wanted an older girl to play the 17-year-old. He said it would take someone older to give her the kind of dignity she needed. He almost fell out of his chair when I told him I was only 18. Mia Sarah almost didn't play Sloan because at the same time she auditioned, she was simultaneously auditioning for to play Sarah in the movie Labyrinth, which ultimately went to Jennifer Connelly. Molly Ringwald had said she wanted to play Sloan, but according to Ringwald, John wouldn't let her do it. He said the part wasn't big enough for her. So I don't, I would not have wanted to see Molly Ringwald in this movie.
2: <laughs> no, I, I like the casting. Mia, yeah. I think Mia did great as Sloan. I, I, interesting to hear what we just said, but you know, she does come across as more mature. Yeah. I, I think, yeah. and probably a, you know, a 17 year old high school girl. So mm-hmm. um, that I think that definitely comes across. She seems like the more mature of the, The three on the day trip. (laughs) That is
0: true. That is true. Yeah. So, yeah. So she was 18. She was the closest to her age. Um, But yeah, but she definitely she definitely she definitely carries a more mature, you know, presence, especially in the movie. So but that's also the character she's playing, too. So. All right. So uh, Alan Ruck had previously auditioned for the bender role in The Breakfast Club, which went to Judd Nelson but Hughes remembered him and cast him as a 17 year old Cameron Fry. According to Hughes, the character of Cameron was largely based on a friend of his in high school. He said he was sort of a lost person. His family neglected him. So he took that as a license to really pamper himself. When he was legitimately sick, he actually felt good because it was difficult and tiring to have to invent diseases. But when he actually had something, he was very relaxed. This sounds so crazy. But <laughs>
2: Cameron is hilarious. When I watched it back today, I, I just yeah. I laugh at his haircut. You know, he's got a yeah. haircut of like he's in, you know, <laughs> second grade. Yeah. But, yeah. Um, just this whole look and vibe. He, he just reminds me when I look back at at one of my one of my college roommates and and they will all laugh just trying to figure out who I'm talking about. But yeah. Um, but yeah, it's uh I think he's the perfect choice of kind of complimenting Ferris's charisma and mm-hmm. everything that he brought to the movie. It's just a, a good compliment.
0: Oh yeah, definitely. So Rux actually said the role of Cameron had originally been offered to Emilio Estevez, who turned it down, which I can't imagine Emilio Estevez in that. So it's funny. So because Emilio was cast in Breakfast Club, but he was supposed to play a different role. And so anyway, go back to the go back to the Breakfast Club episode and get all that casting stuff. But I think it's interesting they wanted him for this one. I don't think that would have worked very well. So but uh, Alan Ruck has joked, he said, every time I see Emilio Estevez, I want to kiss him and say thank you. <laughs> because <laughs> i mean i mean honestly this is the movie that put alan ruck on the map i mean he's he hasn't had like a very full career but he's still done some other things and this is definitely what he's most known for so but he was worried about his age difference because he was 29 he said i was worried i'd be 10 years out of step and i wouldn't know anything about what it was cool what was hip all that junk But when i was going to high school i didn't know any of that stuff either so i just thought well i'll just be me The character, he's such a loner that he really wouldn't give a darn about the stuff anyway. He'd feel guilty that he didn't know it, but that's it. Ruck was not surprised to find himself cast young. He said, because when he was 18, he said he looked like he was 12. He said, maybe it's a genetic imbalance. (laughs) (laughs) It's funny. But yeah, but honestly, of the three of them, Roderick kind of looks like the oldest of the three when you kind of see them together. So even though he wasn't, even though Alan uh, Ruck was the oldest, so, but uh, Ruck and Broderick had been actually been acting together in Broadway. They were doing Biloxi blues. Uh, Cameron's Mr. Peterson voice was an in-joke imitation of their former director, Gene Sachs. Ruck felt at ease working with Broderick, often crashing in his trailer. He said, we didn't have to invent an instant friendship like you would have to do in other movies. We were already good friends.
2: Speaking of, of, uh, of Alan Ruck, I, I mm-hmm. looked at their pictures, um, uh of kind of the way they look now versus the way they look 30. Years oh Yeah. Ago. Yeah. yeah. And he's definitely aged the best out of any of them. Oh yeah. So, man, he still looks like, I mean, he still looks young.
0: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. The only other movie that I remember him being in is speed, of course, from like the nineties and he was much playing someone much older at that point. But, and then I think he was on spin city. He was on a, I think he was on a TV show. I think it was spin city for a while. So, uh, but yeah, he's always, he has aged really well. Yeah, uh, Broderick has not aged as well <laughs> as you would have thought. <laughs> None of them uh, have, but I yeah. mean that's, yeah. that's life. That's life. Yeah, I don't, look, I haven't aged as well as I thought I would, so it's all good. Uh, Jeffrey Jones was cast as Rooney based on his role in Amadeus, where he played the emperor. Hughes thought that character's modern equivalent was Rooney. That he is Mr. Rooney. He'll always be Mr. Rooney. Yeah, but,
2: I, I'm trying to think if they called him the his title in the movie was either like the dean of students. I can't remember if it was that, or if he was the principal, but. Um, Yeah, definitely had the principal vibe. going. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And he was modeled after the vice, like uh, Hughes's vice principal, I think is what they said. And then, you know, one of the most famous characters that has the shortest amount of screen time of the whole movie. Let's talk about Ben Stein. Before he was a familiar, familiar movie and television presence, Ben Stein was a lawyer and was also a speechwriter for presidents Nixon and Ford. Of course, he got the role of Bueller's economics teacher through six degrees of separation. He said Richard Nixon introduced him to a man named Bill Sapphire, who's a New York Times columnist. He introduced him to a guy who's an executive at Warner Brothers. That guy introduced him to a guy who's a casting director, who then introduced him to John Hughes. He said him and John Hughes were the only Republicans in the picture business at the time, and Hughes decided to put him in the movie. Hughes said that Stein was an easy and early choice for the role of the teacher. He said he wasn't a professional actor. He had a flat voice and he looked like a teacher. So and then, uh, you know, the funny story about that whole sequence is his only lines that were in the script was just the, you know, reading off the students names and Bueller, Bueller and Fry. But Mm. when he actually did the the uh, the lines of him teaching the class about economics, that was supposed to be off camera and was only going to show the the students. So it's just going to be a voice. But they said that when he got finished, everybody just erupted in like applause and like laughter. And so he was like, wow, I really. And he said he was actually teaching them something like it wasn't scripted. He was just actually just I'm going to teach them a lesson on economics. I don't think they, they learned. So he thought like they were applauding his knowledge and that they'd really learned something. And like, no, we just thought that was the most boring thing we've ever heard. And it's perfect for this movie. So uh, Hughes decided to film him actually, you know, speaking it because he is has like no expression. It's just so flat. So, but it's perfect. You know, it's perfect. Yeah.
2: Very, uh, very professorial, I guess is the word, (laughs) but, uh, he, uh, you know, the whole thing about voodoo economics. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, that's, you know, I think more so than what he was talking about. I think you're right. That his voice and just those, it it sticks in your head. You know, I I Mm -hmm. still remember that as a clip, you know, 30 years later. So
0: (laughs) (laughs) you're, you're a bit of an economics nerd as well, aren't you?
2: I have become one. <laughs> <In later laughs> life. Uh, but yeah, I mean, you know, when I think back to watching that, you know, when I was a teenager, you know, mm-hmm. nothing about economics stuck, but it was just the, <laughs> you know, the whole soundbite that. Stuck. Oh, yeah, yeah, so, yeah. Um, but yeah, looking back now, it's interesting to hear what he's actually talking about. And I, right, you know, I never remember ever hearing anything like that in high school. But no, um, I don't even think I had an economics
0: class in high school. I didn't get into economics until college. I don't think I do think about that scene and think about as a kid it was like you know charlie brown's teacher it was just like it was just words being spoken i mean i couldn't i i didn't think any of it had to do with anything i just he like, was just speaking gibberish and now as an adult when I listen to it's like okay i still don't know like specifically what he's talking about but i can kind of track and know he what the point he's trying to get across so i just think that's funny
2: comic books have been around for almost a century So join us for moving panels, and I'll see you on the other side of the page.
0: Moving on to Edie McClurg, who played the role of Grace, Ed Rooney's secretary. Grace! Yeah. (laughs) She's one of the funniest characters in the movie. She ad-libbed a lot of her character's lines, including the scene in which she pretends to be Rooney while on the phone to Cameron. Uh, uh, Hold on a second. Uh, uh, uh. She also improvised her line about how popular Ferris is. He's a righteous dude. McClurg has always been known for playing Midwestern characters, but she's also a brilliant stand-up comedian.
2: Yeah, I like the scene, too, where when Jeannie Ferris' sister comes into the office. Oh, yeah. (laughs) uh, Check on if she can talk to Mr. Rooney, and that's, you know, that's hilarious. So I love that scene.
0: So we mentioned him before. Let's go ahead and mention him again. Charlie Sheen has a cameo appearance in Ferris Brewer's Day Off as a drug addict who hits on Jeannie at the police station. To convincingly play this drug-addled character, Sheen forced himself to stay awake for 48 hours before the shoot. Jennifer Grey had actually suggested him for the role after they appeared in Red Dawn together. I didn't put that together until I saw in the notes. I forgot about them being that together.
2: uh, That's the first time I've connected those dots too right now.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Sheen's character was originally much more crucial with a backstory establishing him as an old friend of Ferris. Ferris failed to save him from getting hooked on drugs and dropping out of school, and feels responsible, which would explain why he was so desperate to show Cameron have to have a good time that day. That's a pretty memorable scene, especially for him, because it was such a little cameo.
2: Yeah, I mean, it was when I watched it back today. It's such a, it's honestly such a big scene in the movie because the movie's you know just you know funny comedy, but Mm -hmm. um, through the whole movie, Jeannie Ferris's sister is basically you know just raging against Ferris. Yeah. Yeah. um, and Charlie Sheen of all people is the one person that actually gets <laughs> through to her. Yeah. And, you know, kind of gives her some words of wisdom. So um I, I think you think, you know, it kind of led to the end of the movie when Ferris finally gets caught by, by Rooney and uh and Jeannie's the one that bails him out. So mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. I like that scene. It's a good yeah, scene.
0: It is a good scene. Yeah, I love the part where say like, my friends call me Shauna, and then they have like the Shauna music playing in the background. <laughs>
2: and he's like okay thanks i'll call you gene yeah exactly (laughs) and then she runs off giddily down the steps
0: yeah oh yeah and then uh just to because i always forget that she's in this movie and that she's a huge actress but christy swanson who we know him better as buffy the vampire slayer uh as she was later in the movie but she was originally cast in the small role of the girl who talks on the phone with ferris in the school hall However, the role was recast with Kristen Garrazzano because John Hughes felt it was better to film the scene in Chicago. Hughes had liked Swanson so much, though he offered her the part of the economic student, which was shot in Los Angeles. And she actually had a name. I think it's Simone is what he calls her in, the, in is her name in the movie. So, but yeah, they did a little interview with her, one of the behind the scenes thing. And she was like, she had already memorized her lines for the, the payphone scene. And then she got there and he was like, oh, yeah, we had to, we filmed had to film that in Chicago. So that's already done. But I've got this other scene. And she said she was given like the one line that, you know, the biggest tongue twister line of the whole movie. <laughs> My sister's brother's girlfriend's, you know, whatever. And she said she kept messing it up. And he was like, just try. and She said he would kind of change it like he ever like four different versions to film. So she kept having to redo it and redo it. So but I thought she was funny in that that scene. So uh, but I always forget that that was actually she was actually an actress that went on to do other things beyond this movie. So,
2: yeah, I, I was sitting there today trying to remember what other movies i had seen her in because I, she's such a recognizable face to me. But yeah. when I, when I watched that movie, I, I didn't connect the dots to, to Buffy. So, yeah. Uh, I think that's the yeah. only like big, big, big role that she's, that she did after that.
0: She did some, uh, she's done some guest spots on like TV shows and stuff, but she's, she's been around. So let's jump into uh, favorite scenes or most iconic scenes.
2: Ooh, favorite scenes. So many. Um, I
0: know it's like, it's hard to pick just one.
2: (laughs) I knew you were going to ask me that. I mean, I like the beginning where, uh, you know, Ferris and Cameron are trying to talk to Rooney to, to break Sloan out of school for the day.
1: Oh yeah. Um, Yeah.
2: And then obviously the end when the when the car goes through the garage window, that's just, uh, (laughs) that is probably one of the most iconic scenes for
0: sure. One of my favorite scenes, of course, in the restaurant with, uh, you're Abe Froman, the 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 uh, sausage king of Chicago. Yeah, I don't want to get snotty, snotty,
2: snooty. Snooty. Yeah,
0: yeah, <laughs> yeah. That, and then of course the parade scene is probably one of the best best scenes. The
2: parade. I, I always think about you when I watch that scene because it's just like something Tim would do. <laughs> so it's just like that's Tim. But yeah, I mean, I love that. I love, uh, you know, when they're, as they're coming out of the restaurant and they're about to get caught by Ferris's dad. Oh, yeah. In the the taxi cab coming up alongside him. That's funny. Mm -hmm. Um, And then, um, I don't know, it seems like everything with Rooney, it seems like, you know, he's always out to get Ferris and then Mm -hmm. um, there's always something he stumbles into that's funny. (laughs) So when, you know, when the girl, he, he comes up behind the girl and she's playing the karate kid game, I think it is, or whatever game that was. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, and he thinks he's finally got her, and she spits coke in his face. That was, that's funny. And then um, when he's at the, when he comes up to the to the restaurant there, the same restaurant to order some pizza. Oh yeah. And um, he asks the guy, you know what's, <laughs> you know who's playing? It's it's the Cubs. And what's yeah. the score? Zero zero. Yeah. Who's, who's winning?
1: winning?
0: <laughs> <laughs> the Bears. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He's got he's got some really good classic scenes i don't know man there's just so many no my favorite thing is the exchange when he slaps the phone out of cameron's hand why'd you kick me <laughs> why'd you say that why'd you kick me <laughs> you know they go back and forth like there's your brain yeah where's your brains This yes, it is why'd you kick me where's your brains why'd you kick me where's your brains uh man it's so good it's just you know that that, that chemistry was definitely helped makes the movie you know stand out even more for sure between roderick and rook so they they really, they really knew how to
2: build that. Yeah, energy. I can't imagine. I can't imagine Emilio Estevez playing Cameron. That would, just seems like it would, it would break that whole vibe up. So mm-hmm. glad mm-hmm. he picked. Uh, glad he picked Alan Ruck.
0: Yeah, not a regular question to ask on on a regular episode, but this seemed would work. So, are you more? Would you consider yourself more a Ferris or more a Fry?
2: Oh, Ferris, hundred <laughs> percent. Although I would say that I I, I would, when I think about this and if I watch this movie with my family, they all joke that I was the one who wrecked the family car when I was in high school. (laughs) Um, But so I, there's probably a little bit of Cameron in there, but definitely Ferris for, for skipping school to play golf and go on road trips. Yeah,
0: I was definitely Cameron. That's why I think it's funny. to think I would be the one that would get on like, maybe in my younger days, I, maybe I was a little bit more adventurous, but I definitely think I'm more, I was more of a Cameron. I was more of the, you know, I don't know. Maybe I was, I've, I've become more Cameron as I've got older. Maybe that's what it is.
2: Yeah. I was thinking today, I, I wish they had really made a sequel to this movie because I wanted to see the <laughs> conversation that happened when Cameron talked to his dad. Yeah. <laughs> when he oh, came yeah, home yeah. that night. Yeah. Uh, I think that would be, that'd be fun if they ever want to make a sequel.
0: Yeah. I, I would like to kind of know what did happen. I mean, I know he was ready to face the consequences, but knowing how much his dad idolized that car, it's one thing to, you know, to steal it and run the miles up, but for it to crash through the garage and be left in pieces, that's a whole nother animal. All right, well, let's talk about a few of those scenes we've kind of already talked about, uh, our favorite, but just a little bit of trivia here. So uh, one of my favorite scenes that I wanted, another one of the scenes that stood out to me as a kid was the scene where uh, open at the opening when Ferris is talking to the camera and he's giving the steps to how to fake to be sick. <laughs> it is one of my favorites. So
2: you lick your palms. Yeah,
0: yeah. I know it sounds kind of childish, but then again, so is high school. When he's explaining to his fake to being sick, it was actually that uh, that text was actually added later. John Hughes thought the scene was too flat and not funny enough, so they actually added that in later, which I thought was pretty interesting because I would I would have thought that was like an original idea from the beginning. So I thought this was cool. Despite his frequent absences, Ferris is actually an excellent student. During the scene where Mr. Rooney calls Ferris's mother to report on Ferris's absences, his transcript is shown on a computer screen. For his senior year, Ferris is enrolled in English composition, calculus, chemistry, gym, computer science, utopian society. Who took that in high school? And European history. Attaining. Hey, yeah.
2: All sounds familiar. There you go. Yeah, I, was, I was there, man.
0: <laughs> <laughs> but here's his grades he had an A, A minus, A, A minus, a, AA, and a B plus, respectively, in the previous semester. This makes his GPA a 3.814. By skipping school, Ferris misses a test on European socialism for European history, which was his quote-unquote worst subject with a B. So I think he was okay missing a day.
2: (laughs) I wholeheartedly agree, man. Somehow I made it to college. So, um, But yeah, I, I think I took, you know, all those classes ring a bell to me except for gym. I had to take gym when I was a freshman in high school. That was definitely... My worst class of all high school, <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, all the rest of it, you know, somehow I managed to to get good grades while missing a lot of school. So yeah, here's to Paris.
0: Well, you're always smarter than me, so you you probably took those classes. I was in remedial math, but it's all good. So moving on.
2: <laughs> <laughs> no, well, you know, it goes around. I was the one <laughs> getting called out for not being able to sing in chorus. So there you go. <laughs> Uh,
0: I remember seeing this a couple of years ago. And so I actually paid attention this time, but most of the license plates are all abbreviations for titles of films by other films that John Hughes is a part of. So Katie's car has VCTN for National Lampoon's Vacation, which he wrote for 1983. Jeannie's car has TBC for The Breakfast Club, which he wrote and directed. Tom's car, which I noticed this one was M-M-O-M. For Mr. Mom, which he wrote Rooney's 4FBDO for Ferris Bueller's day off. The exception is Cameron's father's Ferrari. And that license plate reads NRVOUS for nervous. So I thought that was cool.
2: Yeah, never noticed any of that. I want yeah. to go back and watch it. When yeah, off the phone here. So yeah, it's, that's new.
0: Yeah, I definitely saw the vacation one. I saw the Mr. Mom one. I didn't pick up on TBC for the Breakfast Club. And I definitely didn't pick up on Rooney's, but, uh, yeah, I think I saw like a YouTube, you know, like a couple years ago, there was like, you know, 15 things you didn't know about Ferris Bueller and I had a little clips. And so they showed that. And so when I was watching this time, I was like, oh yeah, I remember seeing that before. So, uh, this was funny. One of my, another great scene with Edie McClurg is the scene where she's pulling all the pencils out of her hair when she's sitting in the office. It still makes me laugh every time I see that. So, So she told Vanity Fair in 2010 that her character's hairdo should be from the 1960s because Grace felt she looked the best in the 1960s and kept her look from that era. However, the women's hairdresser on the set had mainly been hired to blow out Mia Sarah's long, straight hair and didn't know how to set the big 1960s hairstyles. So McClurg teased, set, and styled her own character's hair. Once she arrived on the set, John Hughes looked at her hairstyle, and the first thing he said was, how many pencils do you think we can get in there? (laughs)
2: <laughs> that's funny
0: they tested it with one pencil then two and three but the fourth one fell out so that was the origin of grace's first scene in the movie in which he pulls several lost pencils out of her hair i just think that's awesome
2: <laughs> i do and you know she i think she's perfect the way she was i mean if i think back to my high school secretary i mean it just yeah, oh yeah it, it works
0: oh yeah let's talk about one of we both talked about one of our favorite scenes is the parade scene which i think is you know kind of the culmination of the whole day so it was actually filmed at Chicago's annual von Steuben Day parade and because I was like, whos ha- what kind of parade do you have on a regular school day Because if it was a holiday, you would think they wouldn't be in school. So I actually thought that when I was watching this time. but von Steuben Day is a German American holiday honoring Baron Friedrich von Steuben. Von Steuben was a Prus- was a Prussian 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 was a Prussian general who lent his aid to George Washington during the Revolutionary War training American troops to help them defeat the British. My wife is actually from Chicago, and this is true. This is a, this is a parade they do have in Chicago, uh, it seems, every year. So, But the parade scene took multiple days of filming. Broderick spent some time practicing the dance moves. He said he was very scared. Fortunately, the sequence was carefully choreographed beforehand. He worked out all the moves by rehearsing in a little studio. It was shot on two Saturdays in the heart of downtown Chicago. The first day was during a real parade, and John got some very long shots. Then radio stations carried announcements inviting people to take part in a John Hughes movie. The word got around fast, and 10,000 people showed up. For the final shot, when he turns around and saw River People, he put his hands up at the end of the number and heard this huge roar. He said he can understand how rock stars feel. That kind of reaction feeds you.
2: I think that movie, maybe even that scene, is mm-hmm. just one of the one of the things that makes it creates an image of Chicago that makes people. Oh yeah. Oh uh, yeah. Yeah. I, I got to go to Chicago for the first time, um, probably like three years ago on a mm-hmm. road trip. And um, as I was driving through downtown, that's what I'm thinking about. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, it was, it's fun to just go and see the buildings and the roads that he, that he, that he traveled on and uh, oh, yeah, yeah. driving by Wrigley field and seeing the Sears tower and mm-hmm. um, all that. I mean, when I, when I'm there in and I'm, I'm thinking about Ferris Bueller. Yeah. <laughs> so. well, yeah.
0: Well, that makes sense. Cause he actually talked about it, it as in some other thing I read about that. He said, he was like, he's like, I'm not, he wasn't going to, he wasn't going to apologize that this gave him a big excuse to like show a lot of parts of Chicago that people hadn't seen. He was like, especially back then they were either filming in LA or they were filming in New York, you know, they weren't filming in Chicago. So he was like, I wanted them at a baseball game. I wanted them in the music, the, the art museum. He said, that was the art museum was a place that he always liked to go to. So he's like every scene, every painting in those scenes are ones that like, I got to put my, my most favorite paintings in that museum for the whole world to see. And he's like, even though they were, when he asked the museum about using it, they were like, we don't know if we want a movie studio to be in here. And he's like, Hey, I'm about to show your works of art to the whole you know world that they'll be able to see this. And when they come to Chicago, they're going to want to come see these paintings for, for real. And I was like, that's pretty smart. And it worked. So, cause
2: that, you know, the 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 art museum scene is pretty good too so yeah I'm trying to think I watched something about that movie and um it was like I think I remember him saying that 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 scene almost got cut out of the movie that it wasn't yes. there initially yeah and then they, they put it back in because they thought it fit but um yeah I mean I thought it fit I, I really liked how when, when Cameron was staring at the staring at the picture there right at mm-hmm. the scenes and it keeps getting closer and closer where we can see every speck of paint oh yeah um i like that so
0: yeah yeah it's Let's one see. of the it's one of the more it's that that sex sequence isn't really played for laughs it really kind of gets to the heart of each one of each of them think about who ferris is he's not some slacker kid that i'm gonna take the day off and i'm just gonna i mean yeah he did some fun things but hey i'm gonna go to the art museum and look at art i mean that's not that's not, that wouldn't have been the first thing I thought about going to do in high school, but to go look at art pieces and kind of think, and then it kind of shows a little bit more of their characters too. But yes, uh, it may be late, later in the notes by going and talk about it now, but when they did test screenings of the movie, they said that that was the scene that everybody didn't like they, but Hughes didn't want to pull it out, but he realized what was happening was that scene was actually after the parade in the original cut. And they felt like the parade was more like this big, that's how you end the day as the parade. And so climax. when they when they moved yeah. it before the parade, people people didn't have as much of a problem. And they I think they changed the music in that scene as well. And they and they kind of recut, they they cut it up a little bit and edited it a little different. So um it would be weird if that scene was not in the movie, especially now looking at it again. But
2: uh Yeah, to I, me that that's more of an introspective when Cam yeah. for Cameron to kind of see where he's at, but I right. You know, you're talking about the music. I, I really want to go back and listen to the entire soundtrack of that now that I've watched it again because so many, you know, I when I initially think about Ferris, I think about Don Cashane and Twist and mm-hmm. Shout. Yeah, then when I go back and watch it, there's so many good little sound bites of music that remind oh, yeah. me of the 80s, and oh, yeah, I just want to go back and listen to them all.
0: Yeah, definitely. Yeah, we'll talk a little bit about the soundtrack here in a, in a bit because that was. That was a big thing uh, to talk about. We'll get there. So back to the parade. Broderick's moves were actually choreographed by Kenny Ortega, who later choreographed Dirty Dancing. Much of it had to be scrapped, though, as Broderick had injured his knee badly during the scenes running through the neighbor's backyards. Broderick said he was pretty sore. I got well enough to do what you see in the parade, but I couldn't do most of Kenny Ortega's knee spins and things like that we had worked on. When we did shoot it, we had all this choreography. And I remember uh, John Hughes would yell with a megaphone, "Okay, do it again, but don't don't do any of the choreography, he said. And they talked about because basically like Donka Shane, he wanted to be a little bit more choreographed when they got to twist and shout like he kept cutting it or filming it in different ways because he wanted to feel more organic. Like it was like Ferris was making it up on the spot. He didn't want both songs to be. Pre-planned, which I thought was pretty good, which actually worked out because if he'd hurt his knee, he couldn't do all that stuff anyway. Let's talk about some deleted and omitted scenes. Now, I was trying to go back and find this because I want to say like a year or two ago, there was some article and I could not find it. I I looked really hard but there was something in it and I I'm probably going to sh- mess up what it was titled, but it was something like the dark history or the dark side of Ferris Bueller. Of course, it's mm-hmm. a good, you know, clickbait. You know, of course I clicked on, I was like, what does that mean? And so it was this whole article about the original script for Ferris Bueller was much darker in tone than what we actually got. Like it was more serious than the comedy that we know of it today. And they talked about a lot of the scenes that got pulled out. So looking at the deleted and scenes that I was able to find, doesn't really make it any more, any darker, but it, you kind of, you'll kind of see some of the stuff they took out. So Broderick Ruck and Sarah saw the movie a few months before its scheduled premiere and they didn't laugh at all. <laughs> they left thinking they had made a bad movie. Paramount executives are similarly unimpressed and concerned when they saw an early cut. And this is the two hour, 45 minute cut. I think Hughes and editor Paul Hurst then spent two weeks cutting and pasting it into the movie we know and love today. Here are a couple of scenes that were actually cut from the film. One lost scene called the Isle of Langerhans has the three teenagers trying to order in the French restaurant shocked to discover that pancreas is on the menu. Although in the finished film, Ferris still says that he would ate pancreas while recapping the day. You can actually see this scene uh, featured on the the DVD and actually have it on the, the Blu-ray that I bought today. But it's, it's kind of like behind the scenes shot. Like it's not an actual film. You can, it's like somebody shooting behind the scene. So, but it was, I can see why they cut it out. It didn't add anything to it. Other scenes were never made available in any of the DVD versions. Uh, There's one scene. Ferris asks dad on the phone about bonds. His father purchased when he was born. He then takes one of them from a shoebox in his father's closet, cashes it at the bank, and then uses the money to pay for his day off. It was removed because it made Ferris look more like a thief than a lovable rogue. So it was like, I could see that and I could see that, that would give it more of a darker tone where he like just stole money to, to spend
2: for the day out. So, yeah, that doesn't seem doesn't seem necessary. for the movie.
0: Yeah. When Cameron is looking down the Sears Tower and says, I think I see my dad. He actually in the in, in the script, he was actually looking at his dad. He was who was standing on the sidewalk. Later, there was supposed to be another scene where Cameron's dad sees his Ferrari parked along the street downtown when he attempts to reach in the glove box to confirm it. The garage attendant confronts him. So that was another. Probably added a scene that really wasn't necessary. Other scenes included additional screen time with Jeannie in the locker room, Ferris's younger brother and sister, both of whom were completely removed from the film. Additional lines of dialogue throughout the film, all of which can be seen in the original theatrical trailer. Hughes had also wanted to film a scene where Ferris, Sloan, and Cameron go to a strip club. Paramount exo- ex- executives told him there were only so many shooting days left so the scene was scrapped. So you can see there was extra stuff that, they were trying yeah, to yeah that, that is, really doesn't
2: seem like that would fit, but no, um, no. Did, did you say Ferris had a younger brother? I don't I don't yeah, there's
0: so if with and you can kind of see it there this there's two scenes. One scene when Ferris is walking through the hallway and there's pictures on the wall, there's a there's a family photo where you can see a bigger family. And then also in the dad's office and one of the pictures behind his desk, there's like a family of six instead of just the four. When you look at the refrigerator, you can see like some drawings, like kid, more kiddie drawings. So there were younger siblings like in elementary school. So I think in one, which it wasn't in these, but I think in the original article I read, they said there was supposed to be a scene like at the dinner table with the younger kids that got cut. So where you would have saw yeah, that. I'll
2: have to look look at that again. I, I've i never noticed that.
0: And then I was reading this like, like right before we started recording about, because now do you think that Jeannie and and uh ferris
2: are the same age or one is older one is younger yeah i looking at him you would think that Jeannie would be older but right. if ferris is a senior then that I means Jeannie has to be younger right right but yeah. it seems like she's probably a couple years older than him.
0: right you really don't <laughs> they, they, they you really don't know like it doesn't there is i think it's somewhere it's mentioned that they're both 18 so the 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 theory is they were either twins or they were just born nine months apart and like the same year. But yeah, they obviously they're both obviously seniors or, but you know, he said he was a senior was like what well, that means that Jeannie has got to be a junior, but she does seem like she's the older sibling. But anyway.
2: Yeah, definitely.
0: We don't want to talk about plot holes in this movie. We want to love this movie, right? No, I
2: love this movie. <laughs> don't make me think about it. Come on. <laughs>
1: What's up, dudes? I'm Jerry D. of Totally Rad Christmas, the podcast that talks all things Christmas in the 80s. Toys, movies, specials, music, books, fashion, and fads.
2: If it was gnarly during Christmas in the 80s, he's got it covered. Wait, is there a lot of things to talk about for the 80s and Christmas?
1: Well, you got the movie giants like Christmas Vacation, Scrooge, and A Christmas Story. There are TV specials like Muppet Family Christmas, Claymation Christmas Celebration, and a Garfield Christmas special.
2: Plus classics shown every year.
1: You also jam out to Last Christmas, Do They Know It's Christmas, and Christmas in Hollis. But most of all, it was a time for the most bodacious, best-selling Christmas toys ever, like He-Man, G.I. Joe, Transformers,
2: and Cabbage Patch Kids.
1: Yes, them too. We cover them all, plus much more, including standard segments like Hap Hap Happiest Memory, Gagging with the Spoon, The Other Half of the Battle,
2: and Chant with the Littles.
1: So tune in to Totally Rad Christmas everywhere you get your podcasts. Turn the clock back and dive into those warm and fuzzy memories.
2: Later, dudes.
1: All right, so let's talk about
0: that soundtrack or some of the songs in the film. So, Don which we, we both agree is probably the most famous song in the movie. It has a recurring motif in the film and is sung by Ferris, Ed, Rooney, and Jeannie all through the film. Uh, Hughes called it the most awful song of my youth. <laughs> 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 Every time it came on, I just wanted to scream, claw my face. I was taking German in high school, which meant that we listened to it in school. I couldn't get away from it. According to Broderick, Ferris singing Donka Shane in the shower was his idea. Although it's only because of the brilliance of John's deciding that I should sing Donka Shane on the float in the parade, I had never heard, this is Broderick talking, I had never heard the song before. I was learning it for the parade scene. So we're doing the shower scene. And I thought, well, I can do a little rehearsal. And I did something with my hair to make that mohawk. And you know what good directors do? They say, stop, wait until we roll. And John put that stuff in the film. So him, he was just going to be practicing the song just to get ready for the the later scene. And uh, they kept it in the movie, which I thought was great. Other songs, John Hughes personally selected the songs for the film. He wanted them to be somewhat obscure to the typical movie going audience, feeling that he wanted everything about the film to feel new. For example, the song heard when the Ferrari is revealed for the first time and during the final scene is Oh Yeah by Swiss band Yellow. It's one of my favorite songs in the movie. The song was not a hit after its first release, but its inclusion in this movie rapidly pop- popularized it, prompting a re-release. It has since been used in dozens of other movies and series, often in scenes featuring a desirable object or person. So here's the, here's the thing we're talking about. So no official soundtrack was ever released for the film, which drove me nuts as a kid because I, I searched frantically for this in every record store I ever went into. It. It's like, I've got to find the Ferris Bueller soundtrack. Because I think you remember as you know, when we were younger, I collected soundtracks like soundtracks was like one of my favorite things to buy. So but I could never find it. And I didn't. But so found out he never released it. So he said uh, John Hughes felt the songs would not work well together as a continuous album. However, according to an interview with Lollipop magazine, Hughes noted that he did send 100,000 seven inch vinyl singles containing two songs featured in the film to members of his fans mailing list you can find the songs and somebody's probably made a playlist on Apple music or Spotify or whatever, but there yeah. is no official soundtrack for the movie, which I think is. Yeah. I've never seen very it, but sad. I just,
2: I just, I want to go back and listen to some of them now. Oh um, yeah. Not, not some of those, you know, main songs that we're talking about, but yeah, some yeah, of the yeah. things you maybe just hear like a five or 10 second clip of. I, mm-hmm. that remind me of the eighties. I want to hear more of that. The song they played in the, uh, when they're in the museum, it was, yeah. it was kind of like a synthesizer kind of sound. Okay. Um, and I I don't I don't know who that was um, on the song, but I, it's definitely yeah. iconic to me. Whenever I hear that song, I'm going to think of the museum.
0: Yeah. So the music used for the final version of the museum sequence is an instrumental cover version of the Smiths, Please, Please, Please Let Me Get What I Want, performed by the Dream Academy. And that was actually a song. The Dream Academy's version of the song was actually in The Breakfast Club. So he actually did a cover of a song from his other movie in this nice. movie. So, yeah, it's like he went real meta with that one.
2: <laughs> <laughs> real meta. Yeah. I, I, it's, it's interesting to me talking to you about how some of these movies are linked. I, I really never caught that, I guess. Yeah. So I have to go back and, and look yeah. at them all and see the,
0: yeah, I think the way we, they're linked. Yeah. I think we talked about it on the Planes, Trains, and Automobiles episode. I did like a thing about the John Hughes verse or kind of, th- you know, multiverse that they all take place in like the same high school or the same high school, same area. And there's are some characters that are seen in other movies or referred to in other movies. So he did kind of keep it all in like his own little world in his mind of all these uh, different things. So I can't remember if there's something about how Ferris is tied to one of the other movies, but I can't remember now. So, all right, let's start wrapping this thing up. Talk about box office and critical reception. The film opened in the United States on June 11th, 1986. It opened at number two behind Back to School with uh, Rodney Dangerfield. Uh, Its total gross in the United States was approximately $70 million, making it a box office success. And it became the 10th highest grossing film of 1986. So no surprise there. It was a blockbuster. Good, good movie. So Rotten Tomatoes has it at 79% on the tomato meter with a 92% audience score. IMDb has a 7.8 out of 10 with a 61 on Metacritic. I don't know how it's got a 61. That's just strange to me. So so are you more Rotten Tomatoes or IMDb? I think I already know this.
2: Uh, I would be, uh, what is this? I've never seen 100 on Rotten Tomatoes, but I would probably <laughs> give it like a 99. So yeah. Yes, yeah. Yes. please.
0: Yeah, I think 92 audience score is pretty accurate. I may have bumped it up a little bit more like a 95, 96. We've talked about it. It's not a perfect movie, but it's it's so much fun. I mean, just watching when I won, when I sat on a watch it the other night, I just had so much fun watching it. I almost watched it again today because I was thinking that the DV, I thought the Blu-ray that I had came with the commentary. So I wanted to watch it again with the commentary with either Matthew Broderick or the director well, only was the director, but um, but it didn't have the commentary. So I, I still let it play for like 10 or 15 minutes. It's like, no, I'm not going to watch it again. But I would sit there and watch it again. So sequels and reboots. Broderick and Hugh stayed in touch for a while after production. Uh, I think uh, Broderick said, we thought about a sequel to Ferris Bueller where we'd, ha- where we'd be in college or had his first job and the same kind of thing would happen again, but neither of us found a very exciting hook to that. The movie is about a singular time in your life. Ferris Bueller is about the week before you leave school. It's about the end of school in some way. It doesn't have, it doesn't have a sequel. It's a little moment and it's a lightning flash in your life. I mean, you could try to repeat it in college or something, but it's a time that you don't keep. So that's partly why I think we couldn't think of another. But just for fun, Rook said, I used to think, why don't they wait until Matthew and I are in their 70s and do Ferris Bueller returns and have Cameron be in a nursing home? He doesn't really need to be there, but he just decided his life is over. So he committed himself to a nursing home and Ferris come. Yeah. And Ferris (laughs) comes and breaks him out and they go to like, you know, to finally go to the strip bar and all the ridiculous stuff happens. And then at the end of the movie, Cameron dies. So that was Alan Rook's, uh, you know, pitch for the, the long awaited sequel uh, that if they're going to be in their seventies, they've got to wait
2: about 20 more years, something. Oh yeah, man, that would be good. As many, as many older people movies as we've seen over the last decade, that would be a huge hit, I think.
0: Oh yeah. But in 1990, a series called Ferris Bueller started on NBC It starred Charlie Schlatter as Ferris Bueller and soon to be friends breakout star Jennifer Aniston played Jeannie Bueller. So
2: I don't remember anything about that.
0: Yeah, I did. I remember when it came out. I think I watched the first episode and I was like, this is horrible. And it didn't last a full season. Like it only had like four or five episodes. It was not it was not good at all. So, yeah, not every movie should be turned into a TV show, as we've learned over and over and over and over again.
2: Yes, leave this one alone.
0: All right, man. Well, anything you want to add, anything we missed, or you want to reminisce about? I think we got
2: it, man. It was a uh, it was a good it was a good time. Enjoyed it. Yeah,
0: it's a great movie. I would say if you haven't seen it, but if you if you listen to this podcast, I'm sure you've seen it. Hopefully, as many times as we have. <laughs> but it's definitely. I mean, if you haven't watched it in a while, go back and rewatch it because it's it's still enjoyable a couple of days ago i think on facebook i'm in a lot of different like 80s facebook groups now with the podcast and uh i get a lot of good ideas (laughs) from other people but somebody had posted like you know you can only choose one it was breakfast club or ferris bueller and i was like ferris bueller hands down i mean this is this is my number one best john hughes written and directed john hughes film so uh movies that he's written I love plane trains and Automobiles. I love Mr. Mom. I love vacation. So he did a lot of other stuff besides the ones he did. He directed, but of the ones that he wrote and directed that are considered like his, his teen movies, this is by far my favorite.
2: Yeah, definitely. I mean, I, I enjoyed breakfast club. It's a good movie, but mm-hmm. um, you know, when I think about different movies that encapsulate the decades of my life, you know, middle school, high school, Ferris Bueller. That yeah. was it?
0: <laughs> Absolutely all right man jeff i appreciate you being on this one it's been a blast to have you as a guest host i'm definitely gonna have you come back and and do another one sometime soon
2: it was fun thanks for having me yeah
0: man all right thanks everybody for listening we'll catch you guys next time thanks again for listening to this episode of the 80s flick flashback podcast if you'd like to continue the conversation we have a few ways for you to do just that One way is to send us an email to movieviewspodcast at gmail.com. You can also leave us a voice message through the Anchor app. You can find the link to leave a voice message in our episode show notes. If you do leave us a message, we may just use it in an upcoming mini episode. Another way to reach us is through the new 80s Flick Flashback Podcast Facebook page, as well as our Movie Views Instagram. If you're listening to us on Apple Podcasts, be sure to give us a five-star rating, Leave us a stellar written review and go ahead and hit that subscribe button so you won't miss any of our upcoming episodes. No matter which podcasting platform you're listening to us on, be sure to read the episode show notes to find more fun facts and behind-the-scenes trivia we just weren't able to fit into this episode. That's all for now. Join us again next time for another 80s flick flashback.